Reduce time of clinical recovery. Anybody want that? Anyone want to get better faster? Well, there you have it. Take ivermectin. If, you, if you're so unfortunate to go to the hospital, does anyone want to get out of the hospital sooner? Great. Take ivermectin. If you're sick and at home, does anyone want to avoid the hospital and all the beauties and attractions that it brings, which is the oxygen and the ventilators? Well, guess what? Take ivermectin. And today, everybody's concerned and talking about the Delta variant. It's uh, highly contagious. It has a cluster of mutations. It's tearing through Europe and Asia, and it's uh, everywhere else as well. It's spreading very rapidly here in the United States, now accounting for more than half of all the new infections. So everybody wants to know, well, what do we do about the Delta variant? And folks... You've come to the right place. I am uh, Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of the FLCCC Alliance, and I'm here and delighted to welcome you to our weekly update webinar. We have good news. We have Dr. Pierre Corey with us live tonight to answer your questions and tell you everything that he knows about this variant as much as anybody else knows about it at this point, because it is new. These are changing very fast. But you've got to understand that Dr. Corey has studied this disease from the very beginning. He has studied ivermectin. He wrote the leading peer-reviewed paper, the study of reviewing the safety and effectiveness of ivermectin for both prevention as well as treatment of COVID-19. He has been also treating patients in ICUs, in hospitals, which means he's not just one of those doctors up in a nice office or in a lab, but he knows how this disease reacts physically, he sees it, and emotionally as well. And this is, you're dealing with an expert, and we are thrilled to have him with us and as president of the FLCCC Alliance. So uh, for, without further ado, the good news is we're going to have time for questions tonight. You're finally, we've, we've run out of time many times, as you know, you're finally going to be able to ask questions, put it in the Q&A. And without further ado, Dr. Corey, take it away. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, let's do the usual uh, awkward transition as I, um, can you see my slides? Not yet. Probably because I didn't share them. Um, I'm even worse than I can normal. see a great tan on yeah. you, however. Yeah, you look very I finally uh, got out of the ICU and the kids made me take them out on a boat. So that's what happens great. when you go on a boat without now, a hat. There's the screen. I um, see that too. Good. So, yeah. So all you kids out there, make sure you put on your sunscreen. Uh, do as I say, not as I do. Um, so um, anyway, um, how's that look? Looks good. That's okay. Good. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. We started out with the, uh, I guess there was the clip from when I was uh, talking with Brett on his podcast. And yep. uh, essentially what I said in that little clip is what I'll talk about tonight. Uh, I'll just show you some of the data on which we base that assertion. But uh, before we get to that, I, I think, I think today is a really important day. Um, you know, 
you know, it feels like Johnny One Note lately. You know, it's like ivermectin, ivermectin, ivermectin all the time. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, it is critically important. Uh, we do believe in our assessments of looking at the science of the therapeutics around COVID that, that ivermectin truly is uh, the most pragmatic, most deployable, uh, and most effective solution to the pandemic. And so that, that's been clear uh, as a group of scientists, as an organization. Um, but, you know, I was talking, you know, Paul and I have been talking lately, and, and Paul does want to remind, you know, our followers, our listeners, you know, the people who come to see our protocols that, you know, really what we are about is we're about developing protocols for the treatment of this disease. We're trying to become experts at this disease. And ivermectin is one component of it. Um, I feel it's an extremely important component because for many areas of the world, uh, our combination therapy protocols uh, will not be adopted, will not be available. Um, and really the goal would be to keep them out of the hospital and not needing, for instance, our math plus protocol and not needing our eye recover protocol. And to be honest, I think those protocols would largely not be needed at all if we did early treatment, uh, which is sort of my dream, which is ivermectin in the cupboard, you know, so that you could take upon first symptoms. And so what I want to talk about tonight is I, I think we really are at the beginning and, and again, if, if anyone watched the, my talk with Brett, you know, Brett taught me this phrase and I keep using it, that every time I think I'm being cynical, it turns out I'm being naive. And now when I feel like I'm being naive, I'm pretty convinced I'm being naive. But here's my naive statement of the night is that I think with this paper, and I'll talk about this paper in a second, uh, the paper and the accompanying editorial and where it appeared, um, I think we are uh, at potentially a turn. I, I really think things might change. I don't think it'll happen quickly. Uh, I think it'll still give me, you know, chronic crushing chest pain uh, and, and really just abject um, horrors watching uh, the way the scientific community is behaving around ivermectin. Um, but, but this is big, right? So let's talk about what happened yesterday is that this paper was published and why, is it, why this paper is so important is that, you know, myself and our group, uh, we wrote a narrative review where we covered really a very wide swath of evidence. We didn't just stick to the ivory tower randomized control trial only. We looked at a lot of things. We looked at epidemiology. We looked at observational trials, case series, case reports, randomized trials. And we put forth as compelling a case uh, to support ivermectin as, as really a solution to the pandemic as you can. Um, and then in our wake, other groups, other expert panels also published uh, a little bit more refined and more of the systematic review and meta-analysis. So everyone knows about Tess Laurie, who's a world expert at doing systematic reviews and meta-analyses, and her paper was published within the past month um, and has gotten some attention. But here's the thing. What you're looking at here is this is a paper published in the Open Forum of Infectious Disease, which is one of the IDSA journals, right? So it's an IDSA sanctioned journal. That's number one. Number two, if you don't know who Andrew Hill is, he was the lead researcher consultant who led the research team into ivermectin. He spent a year looking at repurposed drugs. Every repurposed drug that he looked at failed. When he got on to ivermectin, which is, again, after us, he had the similar opinion. And we, we, I've spoken a lot with Andrew Hill. And he said very similar uh, uh, statements as Paul did and as I did, which is that he was, he was shocked at the reproducibility and consistency of the data. 
And a lot's gone on since he first started researching it. But this is the culmination of his now probably eight months of work. It was published yesterday. And it is absolutely off the charts what it shows. I mean, this is this is a profound result. We're going to talk about how that's being ignored in the first 24 hours. And I don't know how long it's going to continue to be ignored. But this result is so profound. Uh, I don't know how much more uh, or longer it can be ignored. Although I will not hold my breath pretending that they will not figure out ways to ignore it. But look at what this guy found and reported on in a systematic review of all of the world's clinical trial registries. He identified 59 randomized controlled trials. And at the time of this paper, he had access to the results and the methods, detailed methods and results of 24 of these randomized controlled trials, including 3,328 patients. If you had one trial of that size, that would be practice changing in almost any disease model. And what is actually better than one trial, because one trial can actually miss different populations, a different dose, different timing. What's better than that is actually a collection of trials. And so here you have 24. And basically every single outcome that you could possibly care about is profoundly positive in that it clears the, virin, vi, uh, the virus quicker, right? It essentially, this paper proves it is a potent antiviral. It has antiviral properties. We know that because when you give it to patients, the virus disappears consistently and reproducibly faster than when you don't give ivermectin, number one. Number two, and this is really, this is really important. And again, I have to call attention to what I think is a crime, but the fact is they are reporting, this is the WHO's lead researcher who two months after the most recent guideline of the WHO is actually showing data of a profound dose dependent result impact on viral clearance. And the reason why that's important, and I don't want to get too geeky here, guys, but when you are assessing whether a medicine works in a disease, and if you find data showing dose dependency, meaning as the dose increases, the effects increase commensurately. And when you see that kind of relationship, it is a large and really strong pillar to show how well that drug works. And it's so important that, and I have to call attention to this, that the WHO did not mention that it was present. In their most recent guideline, I maintain, not I maintain, it's clearly in their document, they purposely do not mention that there's a dose-dependent data. And the reason why I know that they didn't mention it is because I knew there was the data because I knew it from Andy Hill as long ago as January. So the data has been out there. The WHO knows about this data. They left it out of their document. Why would they do that? It's because if they included it, per their protocol, published protocols, if they find dose-dependency, they have to raise the quality of evidence which means they would have to raise the strength of their recommendation and they could not have arrived at a non-recommendation. And that to me is a crime against humanity. And I'm, I'm somehow mixing statistical shenanigans with crimes against humanity. It is, the implications are there and I'm sorry, I'm gonna to call to attention to it again because I'm responsible for that because I have that knowledge. So I'm going to share that every single time it comes up. Moving on. Reduce time to clinical recovery. Anybody want that? Anyone want to get better faster? Well, there you have it. Take ivermectin. If, you, if you're so unfortunate to go to the hospital, does anyone want to get out of the hospital sooner? Great. Take ivermectin. 
If you're sick and at home, does anyone want to avoid the hospital and all the beauties and attractions that it brings, which is the oxygen and the ventilators? Well, guess what? Take ivermectin. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe don't take ivermectin because the p-value is 0.07. Because, you know, the risk of going could be anywhere from 86% lower to 40% lower to maybe 8% higher. Uh, That's just absolutely ridiculous. The probability that you would avoid hospitalization is, is actually unassailable. Um, And then most importantly, and I don't know why I put it last, I should put it first, but they, like every other meta-analysis, finds reduced mortality. Very tight, concise uh, interval, reduced mortality when you take ivermectin. And keep in mind, when you see that in a collection of trials, that is the minimum of what ivermectin is capable of because many of those trials did not use it early. And if you use it early, I maintain that the mortality reductions could be far greater as we're seeing in some of the regions who are using it in test and treat protocols. Now, most importantly, because all you've heard from the ivory towers and the biased agencies over six months is they keep dismissing a recommendation based on quality. They say the quality of the evidence is low, the quality of the evidence is low. Well, guess what? They look for things that are called high risk of bias. And importantly, 75% of the studies were not at high risk of bias. And even if you take out the studies at high risk of bias, it did not change the important results. And when you look at objective outcomes like viral clearance, very few, 20% were at high risk of bias, removing them did not change results. And then in the mortality, you had some of the best quality data. Only one of the 11 studies that measured mortality was at a high risk of bias. So enough with these low quality assertions. It's ridiculous. This is a profoundly positive paper. And in any other world that we would be living in, this would be, again, front page news of every newspaper around the world, around the world. And yet today you hear nothing. In no major newspaper do you hear this paper being reported on. This is a profoundly practice-changing, pandemic-changing paper, which is unassailable. It's coming from one of the top researchers in the world who was hired by a consultant to the WHO, who, by the way, this is his own paper. This is not being put out through the WHO. This is his own assessment using his team of experts at the University of Liverpool. And so you have to wonder why there's two different uh, conclusions in in the assessment of that evidence. And you have to look at one who's independent of the WHO and then the the committee that comes out from under the WHO. I should probably take a deep breath because I'm gonna lose my mind if I keep talking about this. So now keep in mind that paper, right? It was published in the Open Forum Infectious Disease, which is one of the sanctioned journals of the IDSA. What does the IDSA? It's the Infectious Diseases Society of America. This is another agency who has seen fit to come to a non-recommendation for ivermectin. They've been consistently dismissive, and they've said ridiculous things like, we are bothered by the fact that almost all the trials are positive, because they're bothered by the fact that they think there might be a publication bias, and they didn't investigate it. But they just say, we don't really like the evidence base because it's too positive. It's just absolutely absurd. Now, let's keep in mind. When they make guidelines, so the IDSA makes guidelines and recommendations generally around antibacterial or anti-infectives, keep in mind that it, you know, when you're using an anti-infective against an infectious disease, it's very quickly unethical to do randomized controlled trials with placebo, right? So like 
it's very quickly would be unethical to do it on penicillin back in the 40s, right? You wouldn't, if you knew penicillin worked and cleared up like rat, nasty cellulitis within a day or two of administering therapy, you wouldn't give someone placebo and let them die, right? And uh, let, let's leave alone Tuskegee for a second. But um, keep in mind that, they, that in, in they've assessed their own evidence base of guidelines and there's two different papers. So right here, two different papers that where they've looked at the strength and the quality and the type of guideline recommendations that they've given over many years. This is over a 20 year period. They looked at 44 eligible guidelines. Half of their guidelines are reliant on expert opinion only. No trials evidence are used in that, or if anything, it's case series or anecdotes. A th another third are based only on observational studies. There's not even a randomized controlled trial in the vast majority of their guidelines. And, and in 16%, it was based on one, at least one randomized study. And then when you look at their strength of recommendations to treat infections, the most common strength is strong and the most common quality is low, which is kind of funny, which is 50% of their recommendations are discordant, which is they have strong opinions based on low quality of evidence. So do I have to do it again? Let's look what the IDSA has to look at today. So this is the background of decades of their guidelines. What do you think they're going to say about this? This is a disease called COVID-19. This is a drug called ivermectin. It sits on an evidence base of 24 randomized controlled trials, over 3,000 patients with the quality quite a no, 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 the, no consistent low quality. And even when you remove the low quality, you still see profound impacts on the most important outcomes. So this is what I would do. I keep doing these call to actions, but I would ask that anyone listening to this talk, any of you, I'm going to ask you to do something tomorrow. And it's not right. Your congressman call the IDSA, write an email, write a letter, let them know, hey, by the way, you guys have this journal that you published this article, which reviews the entire evidence base for ivermectin and COVID. Do you think you could update your recommendation? Um, I don't know, just a thought. So if you guys find some time, free time tomorrow, it'd be nice if you let them know uh, what you think about this paper. So uh, now... This is where it gets a little kind of interesting. So uh, this is this famous Schopenhauer quote, which I've been taught also by another friend, Chris Martinson taught me this one, which is that, you know, we believe we've uncovered and identified a truth. Zivermectin is the drug of choice for COVID, right? And that truth has been just ridiculous in trying to get it to pass into the noggins of, of the scientific community. But um, we've definitely gone through these stages. Well, we're not through yet the third stage, but here we are, right? So first we were ridiculed. I've had definitely seen and read my share of ridicule towards myself and my group, again, who are some of the most highly published doctors in our specialty. Um, we've also seen violent opposition. We've seen crazy town actions being taken, like the one I just mentioned, which is the WHO committee completely capitulating to their funding sponsors by putting out a ridiculous and really fraudulent document, which distorts the science around ivermectin. So that we've, we're seeing violent opposition to the truth of ivermectin. And, and why do I say that I think we might get, be getting into the third state of truth? Now, we're not there yet. But in this journal, and I suggest you guys look at this, there was an editorial. And usually when there's an important article published in a journal, it usually merits an editorial. So just keep in mind, they know this was an important article because they merited an editorial. And I got to tell you, 
this was a really well-written auditorial. I thought he articulated some of the issues extremely well. Um, we are going to diverge in the conclusions, which I find absurd. Um, but I have to say, I thought he, he really wrote well uh, defining the problem, which is, and these are his words, the need to identify low-cost, scalable, and effective therapeutics for preventing and managing severe COVID-19 remains as acute as, as, acute as ever. Because he also mentions that the vaccines we have to worry about. There is an obligation to consider early and incomplete data of emerging therapeutics. Yes, we do have an obligation. That is what we've been trying to carry out. Moreover, the threshold to consider drugs for public's use must not be set so high that demands for unassailable data result in preventable deaths. Agreed. Where exactly that threshold should be set is among most vexing challenges for the scientific community at present. Well, um, yeah, I think you can argue about thresholds of remdesivir. <laughs> you can argue about thresholds of monoclonal antibodies and a whole bunch of other stuff. I do not find that the threshold that we need to argue for one of the safest medicines known to man, the only therapeutic in all of COVID that has decades of, of mass distribution across continents. That's the only therapeutic that you have. So, so I don't find it a very vexing challenge to try to figure out where to set the threshold for ivermectin. Further, he then goes on to say, wow, the results are compelling. And he points out that their estimates are largely similar even after you take out the lowest rated studies. And the included studies do not overlap. Their results are largely consistent with many of the other meta-analytic uh, evaluations. And even the most ardent skeptic should be given pause by this data. Well, this is where it goes crazy town again. And he just gets completely lost. And I, I, I again, I, I don't want to put this gentleman down. I don't know him, but he really is acting under the influence. And I don't mean under the influence of alcohol. I mean, the under the influence of those with political or economic interests. And I'm probably political with him. They're telling him that he can't recommend ivermectin in this editorial. I think it's pretty clear. Remember, we haven't passed into that third stage yet. And so um, um, what I would say, let me see, what time is it? I want to make sure I'm not going too, too long. 22 after. Okay, I'm okay. Um, he basically concludes that they should wait for the five large ongoing RCTs that are right now recruiting and offering patients placebo. Just pointing that out, guys. After 24 randomized controlled trials, they want to continue with these trials giving placebo. And he says it's because these studies were sometimes with small samples, design flaws, incomplete results, or some combination thereof. Well, that's quite, a, quite an assertion to throw. Small sample sizes doesn't matter when you're using, when you have a large treatment effect that you're seeing with ivermectin. You do not need a large sample when you have a large treatment effect. That's like statistics 101. Number two, design flaws are rather vague. I thought we just reviewed the quality. And in that same paper, they're saying that the quality is quite high. Incomplete results is insane. Dr. Hill's team, what they did is they found everything that you would need in a peer review. They got all the information that they could accurately grade the quality of the studies. They got the primary data. They did the analysis and confirmed the analysis themselves, which they do in repeated fashion. They have two different teams that, that uh, perform all of the statistical analysis. So these studies were as about as checked out and reviewed as you can be. And in a pandemic, to, 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 have, to sit there and wait for peer-reviewed studies is ridiculous. That's exactly what the team did. So I find that this, this is a really lame sentence, which is really does not stand on his face. And then he goes on to argue that some have argued 
I guess that would be me and us, uh, that the minimal risk afforded by a well-tolerated medicine does just that. There are secondary harms of early support for therapies prior to a solid evidence base, such as creating drug shortages of essential medicines. Okay, let's talk about that one for a second. So if you recommend ivermectin for a disease which is literally cratering economies, causing widespread lockdowns, massive deaths, raging transmission, you might run short for one of the worm diseases. Okay. So, all right. So that, all right. I just had to think that through for a second. Okay. That would be one absurdity of that statement. The second absurdity is it is one of the most common and widely available drugs in, in human and veterinary medicine. It is it can be massively uh, manufactured and supplied if there's a will. The idea that you would run a drug shortage on one of the safest, cheapest, low cost, most widely available medicines is absurd. So don't read this stuff and pretend that it makes sense. Now let's go to my favorite. Let's worry, let's worry about the erosion of trust that would ensue in the scientific community which has certainly been degraded over the past year. Oh, you think so? Oh, that's the one sentence I agree with. So I agree with the second half, but to worry about the erosion of trust in the scientific community presumes two things. It presumes number one, that if ever they got this wrong, that they could ever be blamed when you have top researchers in the world continuously publishing papers saying that there are 25 randomized controlled trials saving lives. So to worry that you're gonna make a mistake when you have this evidence base to back you up. It's like being afraid to go to court when you have exculpatory evidence. So that is insane. And then the other thing is, what I would really worry about is the erosion of trust if you continue to act like a moron. Like this is actually uh, saying that we should do, which is we should still sit there and wait for some unattainably high threshold of a of evidence for a safe drug and, and then worry about the erosion of trust in the habit. So as we see the deaths mount and the cases exploding across, a lot of it is now in, in, in you know, the Asia Pacific region, those countries are getting decimated with COVID right now. And as you watch this roll out over the next weeks to months, just remember about the erosion of trust in the scientific community that we need to preserve by being really conservative around ivermectin. And so, so I, I just find that the conclusions were insane. The rest of the editorial was good. Uh, you don't have to agree with me. Um, and then I will just say, uh, I'm going to use the, this is an email from our own FLCC's Eric Osgood, who wrote, uh, he's a very wise guy, Eric. I, I, I like listening to his writing, but he wrote to me today, if only there were some way to render a treatment recommendation with evidence that falls short of high certainty. But when you can incorporate safety, costs, risk, burdens, equity, even intervention are all highly favorable. Oh, well, I guess sadly no such framework exists. And by the way, the sarcasm is because that is actually how you make recommendations. You're supposed to take into account all of those. It's not just the treatment effect. And, and that's why what you guys are watching, if you guys don't live in medicine, if you're not a doctor, what you're seeing is just absolutely absurd. You're seeing like these people just doing mental gymnastics to try to avoid recommending this. I, I guess it's, you gotta preserve the vaccination policy or something. Now, keep in mind, this paper comes months later 
these public statements given by Andrew Hill, and he made these statements in public talks, which he gave before the WHO told him to not stop talking, he gave these statements. February 2021, he was staying based on an evidence base at that time, which was 18 RCTs and 2,200 patients. Remember, right now, he's publishing on 24 and 3,300. And at that time, he said, the purpose of this report is to forewarn people that this is coming. Get prepared, get supplies, get ready to prove it. We need to be ready. At that time, the probability that the measured impacts on survival is due to chance is one in 5,000. I wonder what it is now. If it was one in 5,000 now, and then it was, it's one in a billion now. And then he writes, millions of vaccine doses were manufactured, purchased at risk by countries before efficacy was confirmed. Can we start to upscale ivermectin as well? And so uh, those were the words months ago. They were true then. They're, they're, they're just absurdly more true now. And so uh, what was the topic tonight? I think it was variants. So it took me a while <laughs> to get there, Betsy. So. Um, I think after that, nobody wants to hear about variants, but let's talk about them briefly. Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> they do. All right. So I'm just going to go brief. I'll go into a little more detail than what I said or summarized to Brett. But um, just to annoy you guys, there's two ways to name a variant. There's like the uh, alpha, beta, gamma, epsilon, or there's like the region. Uh, I kind of remember the regions better, you know, but sometimes we mix delta and alpha and UK. But uh, just just to, to straighten you guys out. Um since the original SARS-CoV-2, right, there's been variants that have come around. And I'll talk about how they vary. Um, but they also, not only they vary in their sort of uh, protein structure, um, but really what's mo most important to the average citizen is, do they make me sicker? And are they more transmissible? And are they, are they you know, able to upend society more than what we've already witnessed with the, the first versions of SARS-CoV-2? And then most importantly, are vaccines still effective, right? Those are the three questions you have. And when you talk about that UK variant, which we were talking about uh, sort of in the fall and winter, right? Um, it was noted to be with these skyrocketing numbers back in the winter, right? 50% more transmissible and thought to cause more severe disease. We saw a real big uptick in deaths around that time. When you saw South Africa and Zimbabwe hit, you saw these massive spikes in transmission and also thought to cause more severe disease. And early reports in South Africa where some of those vaccines were less effective. Right. The Brazil variant is unclear. We don't have as much data on the vaccine efficacy there, uh, but it is thought to be less effective. And again, more transmissible, but we still need more research. And then there's the sort of the Epsilon, the California variant, which is actually known more uh, in the United States. Um, and then obviously the Delta variant, which I didn't put a little picture or cartoon from. By the way, I got those cartoons from Hector Carvalho. That was his. So if he's listening or if anyone talks to him, let him know I barred him because um, I just thought it was a nice little cartoon. But um, the uh, just keep in mind, right, All this is also from Hector. I thought it was a nice summary. But since all the variants are defined by modifications in essentially the spike protein and the fragments of the spike are the cornerstone of the vaccines, you're right to worry. The big question is, are the variants uh, going to or the vaccines going to hold up against the variants? And, you know, it's not that reassuring. I mean, well, I should say there's reassuring data and not reassuring data. On this slide, I only put the not reassuring data, although there is some reassuring data. Right. So some of the variants seem to be holding up. If they don't hold up in cases, they seem to be holding up in protection against death and hospitalization. So I, I'm not here to tell you that the vaccines uh, are, are, are losing effectiveness. But I got to tell you, we're in our first year, 
uh, you know, we're in our second year and there's already some worrisome little flashes, right? So the South Africa variant, the Pfizer vaccine was wickedly less effective than it was originally thought to be or, or really designed to be. The Brazilian variant, there's reports showing that it's much less effective than the Oxford variant, uh, as well as the original virus um, was. And so, and then now we're hearing from Israel. Now, admittedly, the data from Israel is on a small sample. The number of cases and deaths are really small in Israel. But in that first little assessment of who they saw falling ill with it, it's not reassuring, right? The Delta variant effect is, uh, against some of the vaccines they use in Israel are dropping. And so... Um, I don't want to like inject uh, excess or undue worry, but uh, there have been people talking about we need to worry about the long term efficacy. And I got to tell you, these are not reassuring signs. And so um, let me move to maybe something more reassuring. Right. So um, where I talked about the vaccines that they seemingly I mean, not seemingly they essentially designed uh, to create antibodies to spike proteins. So they show the body spike proteins and you make antibodies. Ivermectin works very differently. So first of all, it, it, it's thought to bind very tightly to the spike protein. That's based on what's called in silico data, which is computer generated sort of simulations. Um, it, it's, it seems to be one of the most highest tightly binding um, uh, drugs to the spike protein that you have in, in huge databases of drugs. They keep turning up ivermectin as the one that confirmationally binds the tightest. And so, and it binds in a really tight fashion to suggest that even small mutations in the spike protein would not uh, mitigate its efficacy. The other thing is it can act as an ionophore. Um, it's, it, it, a lot of these are theoretical. So some of these antiviral properties have not, um, uh, definitely need more data on it. Um, but they, you know, in the Kylie Wagstaff or the Kaylee Wagstaff paper, they thought it was alpha beta important blockade, preventing uh, the virus from getting into the cell or some of the proteins getting into the cell to re replicate. And then um, RNA, de RNA dependent polymerase, it's thought to interfere with that. That's really critical in replication, as well as uh, interfering with multiple structural and non-structural proteins needed for replication. So the antiviral properties are much more uh, than one centered on the spike protein. So the idea that a variant would evade the efficacy of ivermectin just based on antiviral properties is very low to non-existent. And then when you look at the anti-inflammatory mechanisms, and there are just papers coming out more and more and more where you're seeing these really uh, profound positive impacts on Im immunoregulatory condition of the body as it's fighting uh, this virus and even other uh, illnesses. Um, it's, it's really reducing like uh, preventing overinflammation um, and then um, also increasing uh, some of the more immunoregulatory cytokines. And actually the one that I didn't put on here is that ivermectin in a recent paper just this week is, is shown to be uh, what's called a, a repolarizer of the macrophage. It's sort of like a hyperinflammatory macrophage and more of an inflammation tempering macrophage. And ivermectin induces the switch from one to the other. And so if you know anything about COVID, it is a macrophage activation disease. That's sort of the core of what uh, COVID is caused by. It's the macrophage. And ivermectin is it's probably one of the reasons why it's so ridiculously important in this disease. Um, anyway, so with that, uh, let's go some data. So our data here is all really associational. We're just showing you regions of the world with high ivermectin use 
temporal associations. You know, Juan Chimie, again, responsible for this data, he's been doing this for a year. And, and we're just the tightness of what's called the temporal associations, which is the adoption and then the decrease in case counts and deaths are, are, are just so tight and reproducible from all the regions. And whenever you hear a, a health ministry or a government adopt ivermectin, you see the same thing happen within a week or two. Um, and we also, you know, Juan's done many analyses looking at the impacts of competing infectious disease control initiatives like masks and lockdowns and social distancing. And they really don't have the relation that ivermectin does. And so if you look at India, this is India as a whole. It's not as tight as you'll see in some of the regions I'm about to show you. But you do see once the federal, some of the federal institutions started to say to use ivermectin, and keep in mind that was the Delta variant, you did see a rise and then a quick fall. But look at that fall. It was ridiculously fast in, and, and really fast in a number of regions of, of India. So uh, one of the really nicely uh, uh, timed one was Uttarakhand. So the state of Uttarakhand, very large state in India, they actually put out a call, the, the government of Uttarakhand, of a state. It's almost like New York State saying, hey, everybody take ivermectin tomorrow. Well, guess what happened? Everybody in New York, who, no, I shouldn't say New York, right? It's Uttarakhand, but you get it. Um, everybody in Uttarakhand started taking ivermectin and you just saw this cliff, a cliff of drop in cases and deaths in everyone who took ivermectin. Right. This was actually taken from a colleague. I gave a, a lecture in Indonesia, well, Zoom in Indonesia. Um, and one of my colleagues did, did an analysis of the different areas of India that used ivermectin versus those that didn't. These were all decreases. These were rapid decreases in areas that had public or governmental calls for the use of ivermectin. These were increases over the same time period in the case counts. And so you saw these meteoric rises, and we've talked about that before, as far as with Tamil Nadu, I didn't, I didn't put that in there, but um, you're seeing like um, what's best for these variants is to treat with ivermectin. What's worse for these variants is to treat with nothing um, or to treat with something that's not ivermectin. And then here, this is a, just an interesting analysis that Juan put together, which has this odd and little bit worrisome symmetry. But, you know, he timed it to June 1st, where in both Delhi and London, two major cities of two major countries, they had uh, 50, per, uh, 50 cases per million. And over the next month in Delhi, which was heavily using uh, ivermectin, you saw this steady decline in the number of cases per million, where at the same time period in London, where they do not use ivermectin, uh, you saw this steady increase in the number of cases. So uh, associational, correlational, uh, you figure it out, but it's, it's, it, I think it's just more evidence to show that ivermectin is, is helpful. Um, South Africa, we've talked about Zimbabwe before, again, when they they were really getting hurt back in January. Um, the MDs requested ivermectin. The Medicines Control Authority approved it. Uh, that was in late January. And you again saw this plummet to decrease to no, no cases for a long time. Actually, right now, there is a spike in cases in Zimbabwe. That could be another talk with Jackie Stone, because I asked her about it last week. And it's because things are not well in Bobby. There's still a lot of opposition and there's still uh, fragments and not a widespread uh, uptake uh, by all the physicians. But uh, South Africa, same thing. Um, they made it uh, legal. Uh, they made it legal at, at a certain point during one of their meteoric rises. And you also saw a plummet um, in Brazil. The, you know, Brazil's a mess because 
There's just no consistent policy anywhere. There have been a couple of pockets. There's been a couple of cities like Belem and Manaus who really aggressively adopted ivermectin. And, and this is where the gamma variant or the P1 variant uh, was almost all of the cases in Manaus. And that's where, where this hit the papers a lot. This city got crushed uh, by COVID. And when the mayor uh, basically mandated that ivermectin was an essential drug and they started using the treatment, everyone, you saw the deaths plummet. Um, and then this is just a fun slide that I put together, um, which is kind of interesting. It's is that if you guys remember our big rise, right? We, we were getting crushed, right? You started to hear the horror stories out of LA where they're running out of oxygen, right? Um, well, look at these timelines, right? So um, we gave a, a press conference in Houston. So me and Paul and Joseph gave a press conference as, as the FLCC in Houston first week in December, which is right around here. Um, I gave Senate testimony December 8th, uh, which is right around here. And I think we, those two things called a lot of attention to ivermectin. You saw this rapid rise in ivermectin prescriptions per week, hitting like seven times what is baseline, which is like 40, over 40,000 prescriptions a week over this time period. And you saw that while, sorry, I don't know what happened there, while these cases were exploding, and what's interesting is by the time it hit this plateau, which it kind of was at for a few months, so this drop occurred at a point where only 4.7% of the U.S. population was fully vaccinated. So what I'm saying is that this sort of huge you know, surge that we had over the winter, uh, which, which you saw this plateau, which is around February 18th, um, you actually saw a huge increase in ivermectin over the time, and it doesn't appear the vaccines could explain uh, this kind of response. And so I just thought it's an interesting one. I don't, I don't think it was all ivermectin, but it certainly looks like it could have played a role. Uh, all right, now we'll go to questions, and I'll just end there by asking you guys, uh, actually not asking, to thank you again uh, for the support that you give us. Uh, I think a lot of you know that we really are fighting for really just scientific truth, which is being distorted and dismissed. That's what we're about. We're just trying to help the patients. Um, and the amount of like uh, resistance that we're finding from so many quarters, uh, and then in this era of censorship, uh, it's not an easy fight. So your, your help and your donations are, are really, uh, they keep us going and we really need to be kept going guys. Our, our organization is still small. We need as much help as we can get. And, um, and you can help us get that help. So anyway, I'm done there, uh, uh, Betsy. I'm going to stop sharing this slide. <laughs> and we have a lot of questions. And, I, and we ought to point out some of the folks have been fussing because they haven't gotten newsletters. And that's because we have such a small staff, but we're beefing up. We're, we're doing our best. We hope to get some. Hence, hence the call for donations so we that's can hire right. people to help us with the newsletters. Newsletters. <laughs> and we're upgrading the website. And it's a little slow going, but we're doing it. So we're trying to make it better for you. But lots of questions. Good questions here. Okay. Number one from Shereda Hall. Is there anything we can do about pharmacies refusing to fill prescriptions for ivermectin and about insurance not willing to pay for ivermectin? She says, I'm able to get the prescription, but then I end up running around trying to get it filled. In addition, I have to self-pay and the price varies so widely. What do you say to that? Yeah, I only have two suggestions. So one would be uh, like you would do with any other medication you want them to pay for. This is, I'm talking now about the, uh, the insurance companies. Uh, you could send them Dr. Andy Hill's paper uh, and say, this is why I think you should pay for it. And to be honest, in a normal day and age uh, with 24 randomized controlled trials uh, showing that it prevents hospitalization and death, 
unless they like paying for protracted deaths in the hospital over three-week periods in the ICU, um, they might want to pay for an outpatient prescription of ivermectin. So that would be one answer. Um, the second answer, and I've said this before, but if a pharmacist refuses to fill a prescription in many states of, the, uh, of this country, they're not allowed to do it. It's called practicing medicine. They cannot insert themselves between a physician and a patient. The only way in which they can do that is if a uh, mistaken or harmful dose or combination of medicines is prescribed and they do it out of safety concerns. In some states, they have ethical clauses. So like they don't have to do uh, a contraceptive if they're morally object to a contraceptive. Um, but otherwise it's called practicing medicine. And your recourse there is to get the pharmacy number, the pharmacist name who's refusing to fill it and report them to the state board of pharmacy. I have threatened that on multiple occasions and I have gotten them to prescribe. Like that. All right. The next question, Michael Paisley wants to know, how can we help the FLCCC in this fight? Yay, Michael. You did mention one thing. We covered that. I think we just covered that. But I think he probably is asking, you know, it, and that's a shame. I, I don't, I'm not going to spend too much time answering that because we do get such like-minded folks who get it, who understand it. I think they're, they're students of the data, the science, and they, they know what's credible, what's not. Um, either that or they're drawn to medical misinformation. This, I don't know which it is, but, but they, I think they do want to help in, in, in ways beyond just donating money. And we are having trouble managing just the different efforts of trying to synchronize our team and the different asks of us. It's like, I don't know that we can take on volunteers really easily. Um, let's go back to my suggestion before. How about you write to the IDSA tomorrow yeah, uh, and, and flood their telephone lines and their emails with, uh, with reminders that they should come up with a new recommendation for ivermectin and COVID. There's also something coming up on July 24th called International Ivermectin Day. It's kind of a celebration of it. This is something our friend Tess Lowry and her group yes. in the UK are starting, but we're going to help them out as much as we can. There'll be more on our website about that uh, coming up, and we might even talk about it next week. So, you know, people, yeah. can, people can talk about why it, why it matters to them, particularly Spread if they're message, patient. tweet, yeah. as long as Twitter lets you tweet. I, I don't yes. know. Just keep getting good yes. information out. Yes. Okay. Let's see. Curtis, um, here's a good one that we haven't had. Curtis Bodden wants to know, how does ivermectin affect blood sugar and type two diabetes? It doesn't, as far as I'm concerned. Just take it normally. If it did, it wouldn't be mass distributed across continents. If, if you were going to run into troubles with hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, it would not be a global medicine that's on the WHO's list of essential medicines. It would be a much more restricted one. And so there's no important uh, interference with uh, diabetes. That's good to know. Oh, well, actually, having said that, let me be careful. Whenever they talk about diabetes drugs, yeah. Uh, go to drugs.com and look for interactions because there are like interactions which may raise or lower the level of ivermectin. I don't find that those are really important interactions, but uh, at the same time, I don't keep an encyclopedia in my head of all the different interactions. I would tell you there's no important ones, but <laughs> just go to drugs.com and, and, and type in your medicine that you're worried about. And um, I don't think you'll find an important one. Okay, Mary Heskey wants to know. She says, she says, I finally found a doctor to prescribe ivermectin. Yay, can we give her a round of applause? Yes, 
She says, I'm on day four of my symptoms. I had a negative test, but all the symptoms. I took the first dose and in 12 hours, my fever broke. I have less congestion and taste is returning. Is that possible from just one dose? I know the (laughs) protocol now says five days, but if I'm better after two doses, is it okay Uh, to stop and say for another family member? She's not reading our protocol. Our (laughs) protocol says for five days or until recovered. Ah. If you are recovered after one day, you do not have to go to five days. Now, uh, I think we had a little bit more language, which is we said, uh, whichever comes from, we just want, because we don't want people to stop at five if they're not well, but we do want people to stop at two or three or one if they are well. And, and that story of her taking it early on and feeling just tremendously better is, is great. Did she say she had a negative test? Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing. Let's say it wasn't COVID, which we know it was, right? It had anosmia and all that stuff. So I, I'm sure it was just a, a false negative. But uh, but I, I was going to make the joke. Let, yeah, anosmia. So, <laughs> so that's probably almost definitely that it was COVID. But um, yeah. let's say it was the common cold. I think that's evidence to show that ivermectin is effective against the common cold as well. So uh, either way, she's better. She doesn't have to take five days. Okay. By the way, there's one other thing I want to clarify. Earlier on, you kept saying Paul, Paul. People need to know that's Dr. Paul Merrick, who is- Who we actually call Bob internally because he likes to call himself SpongeBob. So if I start calling him Bob or Paul, that would be Dr. Professor Paul Merrick. Yes, that is correct. Um, I think hopefully a lot of our followers know who Paul is, but uh, but that's fair. But for those who tuned in for the first time. Yeah, just call him SpongeBob. (laughs) Sean Coughlin wants to know if I'm taking ivermectin as a prevention and I come into contact with the coronavirus, will my immune system still develop antibodies to COVID? So we don't have great evidence on that, but if you put the metaphorical gun at my head, I would tell you, you're not going to get antibodies. And I base that on two reasons. Number one That paper that I presented tonight of Dr. Andy Hills, notice that in the introduction of that paper, he did not look at any trials of prevention of ivermectin. So so you guys have to understand that even though that paper is so profoundly positive, it completely ignores a growing and large evidence base showing that if you take ivermectin regularly, you won't get COVID. The reason why you won't get COVID is because uh, we believe it binds to the spike protein, prevents entry. So if it doesn't enter, you're not going to make antibodies. So that would be one thing is that I really don't think you're going to make antibodies. Um, The second reason, this is what's called, I'm basing this on an N of one. It means on on a sample size of one patient experience, which Dr. Keith Berkowitz, who's one of our group uh, in the FLCCC, he told me that he checks antibodies on all of his patients before they get vaccinated. Um, And he said, everybody has antibodies that he's tested, uh, that has had COVID. The only person that doesn't have antibodies that had COVID um, was given ivermectin early. So that was an example of an early treatment who never made antibodies. So if you're taking it prophylactically and you get exposed, I don't think you're going to make antibodies. Okay. Casey Smith wants to know if children should avoid the vaccine, will you be recommending a prophylaxis protocol protocol for kids with the Delta variant affecting kids more? I'm asking specifically about kids 10 years old and over. 10 years old and over. 
I think that would be a decision. And I hate to do a cop out there, but um, yeah, let's just say this. We have not analyzed or really calculated the risk-benefit ratio of chronic prophylaxis of children yet. We think it's safe to do. Um, we also think it's generally well-tolerated, although I get that the question is saying, not really, not in everybody. Um, I, I, I think as of right now, I would leave it to that would be a parental and physician decision. Um, I think, look at the evidence, you can look at some of the risks, you know, every, you know, you have to understand that there's, there's sort of, um, you know, it, it's something called patient centered care is that different patients have different risk tolerances. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't say to everybody that you should prophylax your kid. And I wouldn't say to anyone that you should never prophylax your kid. Right. So I, I think, I think it's, I would leave it to the individual parent. Um, maybe I could share my own. I, I would say that I, I've been, uh, prophylax. Well, yeah, I've been prophylaxing the kids around trips, like when we moved around a lot. Um, they haven't been that social yet, but uh, yeah, but maybe we have to rethink that. I don't know. Well, Angela Gimble wants to know if a vaccine is mandated for a college student, can taking ivermectin help attenuate some of the potential side effects from the vaccine? Oh boy, they're really pushing me today. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're up against this stuff. You know, the, the schools are saying you, know, you got to get back. I try to be so like, you know, at the same time, I want to be responsible and credible. And like, I, I just want to be able to delineate like when I'm speaking on evidence and when I can speak with confidence and when I really can sort of theorize. Um, and here's how I'll answer that question. I'll, I'll go forward and I'll answer it a little bit, but with the caveat that this is really just a hypothesis and a theory, but what we do know, if you look at our iRecover protocol, um, myself, as well as Ram Yogendra and Bruce Patterson's group, um, been treating increasing numbers of patients with post-vaccine syndromes, inflammatory syndromes, lots of different sort of manifestations of illness after vaccine. And they have responded profoundly to ivermectin for reasons which, if you look at the talk tonight, are pretty clear as to why. Um, so I guess if the question is, if you're mandated to take a vaccine, would ivermectin, uh, were they asking about taking it beforehand or afterhand? Uh, she didn't say. Because if it's after, I would just point them to the iRecover protocol, which is yes, the iRecover protocol is intended for patients who develop um, uh, you know, post-vaccine illnesses. Uh, so I, I would answer that. Linda Pindy wants to know, she says, I heard that the WHO may try to protect ivermectin for tropical diseases. Do you know about this? And will it impact pharmacies and filling prescriptions? Is this just another tactic to keep folks from getting ivermectin for COVID? Okay, so that one I will answer definitively and, and with the utmost, I cannot make a stronger recommendation than yes, that is a bald face tactic. There would be no public health. Uh, you just can't do that. Uh, you can't do that. The answer would be make more ivermectin. You know, uh, uh, pr promote the world supply, deploy it in areas, have a concerted program where you could preserve it for the places that, that are uh, that have, um, uh, you know, uh, 
prophylactic programs against parasites. But keep in mind also, the places with prophylaxis programs is usually once or maybe twice a year. So let's say you were to delay for a few months in some of these prophylaxis, you could do that. There's smart ways of doing that to pretend that you have to secure supply of one of the most widely available drugs in the world is, is absurd. It's absurd. And again, having said that, I'm not an expert at the supply uh, of or how to distribute the drugs across the world, but, but I, I know a lot about ivermectin and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We've interviewed people, however, who do manufacture it and know the drug. And it's, they say it's a simple thing to make. You make listen, readily available ingredients. One, one uh, pharmacy in uh, Indonesia that I was talking to, they were, they were able to make 2 million tablets a day. And I know of other places in India that can make far more. And so, no, just no. Yeah. That's, that's a tactic. That would be games. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be unsurprising, hey. completely <laughs> in their playbook of what they would do. And, and you saw that in that editorial, that that fake concern about, you know, uh, uh, you know, not having supply for parasitic diseases. That's absurd. Yeah. Stacy Romine, I hope is the way Romine as anyway, Romani, Romani. Anyway, will be the up will the uptick in attention to and censorship of ivermectin pose a risk that it might become unavailable in the United States? Uh, so I'm going to say no. Again, uh, again, I'm a 501c3, right? We, we have no financial conflicts of interest or anything. But since I am considered one of the experts on ivermectin, you know, I've talked to many people involved uh, in, in, in responding to this pandemic with ivermectin. And, and I know from um, uh, one of the CEOs of a pharmaceutical company uh, that they would expand supply. There might be a delay, but they could meet any demand that was created. There just would be a delay like there would be in any other medicine. So it's not that you couldn't meet demand. It's just you might not be able to do it overnight. Guy Watkins says, is it likely that ivermectin would be effective against chicken pox, mumps, measles, and flu? My favorite question. My favorite question. And the reason why is, um, so, so let me go backwards and then forward. So backwards is, if you look at the basic science data, starting in 2012, there are cell culture models where they're showing efficacy of ivermectin against West Nile, dengue, Zika, HIV, and influenza. That's the bench, right? Um, so we don't have clinical trials evidence in those other disease models, although I have anecdotal evidence about shingles. Um, we definitely have had anecdotal evidence of it helping clear up shingles. Um, there's some evidence, maybe EBV, uh, but, but basically the short answer is I love the question because my hope and dream is that uh, once we're done with COVID and ivermectin, once it's established, once tomorrow, all of our listeners actually call the IADSA 1 million times and they recommend it tomorrow night and then our work around ivermectin is done, uh, then we can move on to promoting trials. Uh, and there I would wanna do clinical trials on those other viruses. You know, I would I'd love to see a clinical trials evidence base grow up around those other uh, viral disease models. And so I am hopeful that it would be. It has, it has viral antiviral properties that are not specific 
to coronaviruses. They're actually shared by RNA viruses and DNA viruses. And so uh, it could be one of the broadest antivirals. But again, we've we got to wait for some more uh, clinical evidence for that. May have to win the Nobel Prize again if this is. Oh, that would be cool. A trifecta. Yeah, that'd yeah. be great. Okay, we're going to have question number 11. I just want you all to know we got through 11 questions. This has to be the last one, but it's a good one. A good one. Juliet Goudreau says regarding the current RCTs that are being done, okay, Oxford and all the rest of them, and I guess, uh, what is it, McAllister out there? And um, anyway, are they designed in such a way to fail and discredit ivermectin, in your opinion? So, uh, yeah, so people who've listened to me before probably know that restraint is not my middle name. Uh, but here's what I'll say. Although I ascribe a lot of sinister intentions, because uh, when I look at a problem and I've looked at the science around ivermectin, uh, after spending months trying to figure out the behaviors of some of the opposition, I could only conclude sinister. When you talk about the design of these trials, let's leave alone whether I think it's sinister, corrupt, or evil. I, 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 do, I will say that I have expert colleagues who are convinced that it is uh, from sinister intentions. Um, I would rather just say that they are clearly poorly designed trials. Um, we've already had two trials published where they're not getting to the patients early and they're using low doses. And for instance, the principal trial allows up to 14 days from symptoms, which is just beyond absurd. Um, in, the, in the Colombian trial and the uh, Argentinian trial, both which showed benefits, just not statistically significant and very low event rates, um, their average was like, I think, four to five days in those trials. And even that is late. Um, I got to tell you, one of the problems of these, these large randomized controlled trials is that they're unwieldy and inefficient. Um, whereas like some of the sin single center ones, they get to the patients early, they present, they give them ivermectin and you're able to, to test efficacy much better. Uh, so yeah, I, I have grave concerns around the principal trial as well as active six. They're allowing up to seven days from first symptoms. Um, you're just going to dilute the, the possibility of finding, uh, a result. And it's very well, you can find a non-result and, 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 to knowingly do that, I, you know, I would say this for all of the ivory tower and all of the agencies, you know, they have delayed, distorted and dismissed the evidence around ivermectin by constantly saying we need a proper trial. We need a proper phase three multi-center double blind randomized controlled trial on European or American shores. Well, they don't say that part. I do. Um, but really what they should be saying is we should design an excellent methodologically like sound fortress of a trial, N you know, not this crap that they're putting out there. It it's just sad, but here's the other thing. Although the principal trial, I have major issues with the design and really the, just the ethics. I mean, if you look at the paper by Hill today, um, if you gave that paper to a layperson along with the consent form saying, by the way, um, here's the trial uh, that we want you to enter where you might get placebo. Uh, and then we're testing ivermectin, which has this evidence base. Now, if you're in a place where ivermectin is available, you would say, screw you in your trial. I will just go get the ivermectin. Here's the really sad thing about what's happening in the UK is that a patient sick with COVID in the UK right now is effectively being coerced into the trial. And you know why? 
it's sort of like this secondary coercion. It's not the investigators doing it, it's the health system doing it. Because guess what? If they decline to go in the trial, there goes their chance at getting ivermectin. And so effectively, and I got to tell you, it happened this week. I was in communication with a, a citizen from the UK who fell ill, reached out to me because me and Paul, Bob, Dr. Merrick, we still respond to individual emails much more than we should. Um, you know, I, I gave him a little bit of advice and he told me he can't get ivermectin. And then he said, you know, he heard about the principal trial. Anyway, he enrolled in the trial and he got ivermectin. He know he got ivermectin. So I found that it's also, it's not a blind, it's not a blinded trial, which is interesting. Um, but he got it. And guess what? You know what I asked him? I said, Hey, by the way, so he told me he got his pills. They were shipped to him. He told me I'm getting them tomorrow. He got his pills. And I asked him these two questions. I said, by the way, can you tell me what day of symptoms you are? And I said, also, what were your presenting symptoms and how are you feeling now? And you know what he told me? He wrote, July 1st is when I got sick. It was July 6th when he wrote me. So he was day six of symptoms and the list of symptoms that he had, generally every single one was getting better and he hadn't taken his first pill yet. So there's someone, if you're looking at the primary outcome of hospitalization, ivermectin has no benefit because guess what? He wasn't heading towards the hospital. He was already getting better. So if you're getting patients day six or seven who aren't severely ill, they're probably on their way to getting better. So they're going to get better anyway. Now, if you're, if you're going to get time to clinical recovery, which is a subjective outcome, there you might pick up a difference. But then again, not a great outcome to test in a non-blinded trial. When you're telling patients you're getting ivermectin and then asking them, are you feeling better? That's like the classic, like not what you do in a clinical trial. So uh, I, think, I think I've exhausted myself. Uh, <laughs> You've done very well, yeah. very well. But we need to wrap it up. It's after eight, and we will tell everybody who likes to chat. We're going to keep the chat open for another fifteen minutes, so you can talk with each other and organize your write-in campaign that you're going to do. But we have to tell you that uh, that's it for us. Uh, but we'll be back next week. So if you uh, you know didn't get your question in tonight, even though we got to a lot of them. Try us again next Wednesday night, seven o'clock Eastern, four o'clock Pacific and whatever in between. And don't and forget to write to the IDSA tomorrow. That's right. That's your, <laughs> that's your job. That's your job. And if you're looking for further information from us, remember, well, we are being censored, but you can try Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and, and YouTube. Uh, we're also now on Telegram just as, as a backup. Uh, and always check our website, flccc.net for everything. As I said, we're making changes, but uh, so it, but our protocols are there. If you need the protocol, that's where you go. You can get it right on the front page. It'll There's a button that takes you to it. And that's basically it. And again, thank you all for the donations, no matter how big or how small, it all matters because it's expensive getting the word out, particularly when people are trying to keep you from getting the word out. So boy, what you are doing really, really matters. Saving Thanks, lives. Guys. No question. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.